Welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm Jennifer Loudon, and I'm so happy that you're here. I am the author of numerous books, including most lately, Why Bother? Discover the Desire for What's Next. And you can find out more about me at jenniferloudon.com, including getting a really cool freebie for how to get unstuck from any kind of creative hairball. Today, we have a fantastic guest. You're going to love this conversation. I really like this person. Her name is Paco de Leon. Isn't that a fantastic name? And she's written a book called Finance for the People That You Need to Get If You Have Money Issues at Any Level. And this is a conversation that we're going to get nitty gritty. We're going to also talk about mindset. We're going to talk about freelancing. And we're going to have a blast. So buckle up and let's talk about money and finance for the people with Paco de Leon. Paco, your new book, Finance for the People, starts with a quote that just made my like heart beat in the fastest, best way. And you wrote, money is a proxy for power. And I believe like so many humans in the modern world that when we have money, we have power. And of course, you write a little bit later, the opposite is also true. And I'm convinced that's why so many of us also carry such deep emotional associations to money. And then you go on to say in a bad paragraph, I want to have power because I don't want it wielded over me. And that's the reason I wanted to have you on. I want to talk about power and money and creatives. So thank you, first of all, for just stating it right at the beginning. Power and money are really intertwined. And I think people are so afraid of their power, frankly. Yes. Especially (laughs) people who identify as women or who've been marginalized. Yes. There's a lot of internalization we've done about what others have done to us, right? About taking our power away. And so I think it's always a little scary and a little terrifying to step into our power. I think a lot of us need permission. I know personally, going off on my own, so many things in my life, I needed somebody else who I thought held power to say, you're allowed to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to write a book that let creative people know, creative professionals and artists and folks who have felt underserved, unseen, shut out from the finance world. I wanted to be the person that said, hey, you have permission. This is for you. It's been branded very awkwardly and weirdly, and there's a lot of jargon, but allow me to come in and just have a chat with you and break it down like a friend. And this is absolutely for you. That's beautiful. I am fascinated because you are a creative person. You're an illustrator and a writer and a musician, and I'm sure, and you have the nonprofit Allies in the Arts. I'm sure lots of other creative things that you do. To me, you're a living example of someone who can be a creative and also become very fluent in this thing called money, investing, profit. So was there a particular moment when you thought, oh, I can do this money thing or I giving myself permission to learn about this? I made my decision to study finance in the same way I think a lot of young Americans make any decision about what they think they're going to do for the rest of their lives. My time ran out. I was like my third year in college. And, you know, it just felt like you have to pick something, kid. And (laughs) I didn't feel like I had the permission to choose art, music, or even English. It felt my parents, they immigrated from the Philippines at a young age. My mom was 11 and my dad was 17. And they assimilated and they never said the words to me like, don't study art. They never said, 
don't do something that we view as impractical. But I could read between the lines. My parents didn't have any friends who were artists or writers who are making it in the world. You know, all the people that we knew were like kind of working class, working in a plastic factory. Or we had some people in our family who were successful, but they were in like the medical field. And so all those examples for me were, you know, you do something professional in the daytime and then you can do whatever you want on your off time. And so my approach was I saw people who didn't seem to be that smart and they didn't seem to be working that hard because they wore like nice suits, right? We're not like shoveling dirt, right? You're sitting in a climate controlled room, clickety clacketing on a computer. And somehow, somehow you take people's money and you make more money. And to me, there was an element of magic. There was an element of feeling like I got to know what's going on over there because it seems wild that we all just accept this on its face at say, at face value, you know, that that other people take your money and make more money. Come on. We like, let's unpack this. Let's see what's going on. And so I thought, you know, I would go to work in the daytime and then at nighttime I would just go and play in my band and hang out with weirdos and that it would just be fine. That was the decision for me. It was not, I was not a reflective person when I thought this made this decision, you know? Well, we're not reflective usually in our early twenties or late teens. (laughs) One of the biggest blocks I see, especially for people who identify as women is not creating, not making their art, not doing their writing because it doesn't earn money. So whatever they do for money, or if they're a stay at home person, then, then all the taking care of that stuff and the other, the partner goes out and works. Sometimes it feels like we value money. Okay. Sometimes not sometimes a lot that we value money more than we value our creative needs. Do you think better financial literacy can help with that? Or do you think it's, it's like, how can we work with money in a way as creative women to give ourselves permission to do our art and still take care of ourselves? I'm not saying, oh, you know. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the answer is going to be very personal for each individual. And I do think that facing money and understanding Mm. the narratives that we have around them, you know, the stories that we've told ourselves. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, kind of stepping back and seeing like, why did I make this choice in my life? And it was because what I saw modeled around me and what I saw modeled around me then reinforced how I thought money worked in the world. And so I think just being cognizant of that and gentle with ourselves and looking at our patterns and how we've behaved with our creativity and our money in the past, that will allow us insights that can then inform how we should move forward. And I think that there are two camps, probably more than two camps, like <laughs> <so> binary. <laughs> or just have binary brains, right, binary exactly. culture, got binary culture. Where you can just, you know, you don't have to monetize your art. I don't think that there's yes, yeah. anything wrong with not monetizing your art. I mean, there are lots of things that I do that are creative that I'm I'm not trying to monetize. I'm using that as a way to process my human existence, right? To feel my feelings, to inform my work in other ways. And then there's totally exploiting your art for money and bringing your art to the marketplace, bringing it into the world of commerce. But I think what we really need to recognize is when you do that, there are caveats, there are parameters. You are now beholden to the market in a way that you are not beholden when you are just using art as a way to process life. Absolutely. And 
Okay. I want to dig into this a bit more because, and I know this is my bias because I feel like I grew up as a woman because I had to earn a living. And I feel like so much of my like development as a person came because I didn't have a partner who could take care of me or my family or my child. I feel like I did that in reaction to my mom who never worked, who married a wealthy man, my dad, and you know, was taken care of, but wanted to have an identity, wanted to have a creative fulfillment business, something, and just never was, he basically said, no, you can't do that. And so I feel so fierce that not that we monetize our art, but that we learn as women to look at money and to know we can earn it. Absolutely. (laughs) Not a question. That was just a little diatribe. (laughs) I mean, we're also coming out of generations right decades of oppression for women like we're still we're still oppressed yeah in the 1970s i mean when i think about my life i feel so goddamn lucky that i was born when i was born Mm -hmm. because i'm married to a woman and i think all the time like if i was born what like 50 or 60 years ago and i first of all i wouldn't couldn't be married to a woman but then what i'd have to like bring my dad to the bank to have him open up an account for me that is gnarly and 25 years ago you had to do that exactly and so we're still learning like how to be these people in the world who you know are reckoning with this history with this past there's still that residue and yeah we're seeing it in all these interactions you're seeing it you know as you're the next generation after your mom trying to navigate Mm -hmm. this world and i think oftentimes when you grow up a certain way, you can have an equal and opposite reaction, Mm -hmm. you know, or live your life in a way that is an equal and opposite reaction to what you've observed. And for you, you're like, we need to talk about money. We need to make money. And we also need to make our art. (laughs) Yes, that's true. That's very true. Well said. You alluded a moment ago to our sort of misbeliefs and our stories about money. And that certainly is part of that starving artist persona, like a big old hairball of stuff that comes up. If I want to be creative and make a living, it's going to be painful or impossible, or I'm going to, you know, blah, blah, fill in the blank a million times. Is there anything you see as like a a real good beginning point to begin to step out of that starving artist in, again, like you said, each of us holds this uniquely. Yeah, I think that You have to look outward and you have to look inward to find those examples. You know, I touched on this earlier. I'm a, I have a meditation practice now for, I think over 10 years, which is kind of insane to realize, but (laughs) it is, it it, it adds up. It does add up. (laughs) And I think sitting quietly with yourself and learning how to not grasp so tightly onto the thoughts that you have and Mm. to not always believe that if you think a thought, you are the thought, that's going to be the very first step. And of course, I am still guilty of thinking a thought and and latching onto it. But the point of having a meditation practice, whether it's sitting on a cushion or doing yoga or walking through the park and looking at the leaves on a tree, is it's to step back and to just let the thoughts be an observation like a cloud in the sky. So that's the first step. I think another very practical thing we can do is to just look at look at examples of other people who have created their art and have been successful. 
or have made a living. You know, they've continued to be an artist throughout their lives and they've made a living doing. Recently, I read this Andy Warhol quote, which was he says something along the lines of, you know, making art is making money and good art is also I'm going to I'm totally screwing this up. We're going to have to Google this and punch this in later, I think. (laughs) Okay. I mean, he alludes to the fact that good art is also making money and good business is also good art. And I think Mm. that that's like a very people want to look at Van Gogh and see that he died when he was destitute and he didn't sell his, you know, I think he only sold one painting, but look at Andy Warhol and Jeff for the clutch move here, just pinged us in the chat. Here's what Andy Warhol said. Being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. Making money is art and working is art and good business is the best art. So right there from Andy Warhol's lips to our ears or me through whatever. You get what I'm saying? I love that business can be art. I've really had to learn that. I had to learn to really choose me. My first book was published in 1992. And even though I took a very entrepreneurial approach. I did my own book tour for three months in my parents' Ford tourist station wagon. (laughs) For probably the first 10 or 15 years of my career, it was all about choose me, choose me. If I can get the media to choose me, if I can get the speaking bureaus to choose me, if I can get the magazines to choose me. And that is a reality in a lot of artistic, creative pursuits. But for me, the big mind shift was I want to learn to choose me. I want to learn to create the conditions where I have more, I don't know if control is the right word, but more choice, more autonomy, autonomy. Thank you. Over, over my, my income flow, my profit. Right. I feel like I could boil down a lot of the kind of mindset pumps Mm -hmm. that we all have or problems. Not that we're all the same, but we often, I think, struggle with the same things. And I think I've struggled with the same thing that you're kind of describing. And to me, there's this sense of like worthiness and worth, right? Mm -hmm. Like, especially in the beginning of our careers, it makes sense that we're trying to prove our value. Like we're saying to society, hey, I'm valuable for all these reasons. Here's my resume. Here's all the people who said I was valuable and therefore I'm valuable, right? So you must think I'm valuable, right? I think once we really kind of settle into our worth and realize like, oh, wow, I'm valuable for a lot of reasons. First, like, I just want to say we're just valuable because we're human beings walking around on planet Earth. That's we're just valuable for that reason. But it's also interesting, like all the different ways that we can contribute value to society. Like I am tickled to no end that I could just get on this thing and have a conversation with a person. And society is like, yep, we value that. That's so wild to me. And that it helps kind of, you know, the whole machine of promoting my business, promoting my work. Yeah, I think. A lot of people might arrive at this idea of, am I worthy? Am I enough? Am I valuable? They might arrive at it through a different road. But I think a lot of women in business who are creative as well, that is like a a theme of their hero's journey. Mm -hmm. It is to find that deep worthwhileness that is not dependent on your sales. For example, sales of books. That was my measurement for years of whether I was worthwhile. And I remember my first editor who became my first agent saying to me, what is ever going to be enough for you? Right. That word enough. What's ever going to be that? Is it the New York Times bestseller list? And if you get on it, how many weeks? Right. What is it? 
I haven't watched the Tiger Woods documentary, but I've heard this anecdote about it. So sorry that this is like a copy of a copy that I'm telling. (laughs) But apparently, maybe I read this in an article, but apparently there was like this lore about the E-word on the golf course with his dad. And his dad would say to him, like during practice, tell me when you've had enough. Mm. And so like you can look at that kind of other side of the coin and you look at Tiger's personal life and you can see that, you know, how he was like, nothing was ever enough. You know, he was never enough. What he achieved was never enough. And, you know, he even went off the rails, I think, in his personal life because he's trying to fill this hole. Right. That's dad. Am I enough? And yeah, it's it's kind of crazy that so many of us are looking to each other and asking for that validation. But well, it is the way it's we're real. It's it's way we're built as humans. You know, we're social creatures, right? So, my dear producer Jeff, who is listening in as we record this, and he's just such a wonderful man, has become an independent contractor in the last year. One of the big things I see when people make that switch is, ah, how am I going to have enough money coming in? And of course, that is true for lots and lots of people listening. If you do monetize your creativity and your skills, I love the profit first, or pay yourself first idea and book that you allude to in the book. But for your specific, I mean, you've been through this yourself. What do you think are three things that help stabilize that maybe from both a practical standpoint and a mindset standpoint. Let me just say, you know, the first couple of years are kind of a clusterfuck, (laughs) (laughs) but it's good. It's good that it's a clusterfuck because you're experimenting. And I think that's the first kind of mindset thing to think about is when you start your own business or when you're a freelancer, you're kind of like you're testing a hypothesis, right? The hypothesis is these kinds of people, which is going to be your market, will pay me for this kind of service or product that I'm going to make mm-hmm. or produce or w- execute for them. And the first few years, I think, are just trying to find the data to validate that hypothesis. And so if you quote unquote fail, right, or you're reaching the wrong market, something feels off, or for me, what happened was I was like, I'm going to try to do financial planning for creative professionals. And a year later, I was like, well, it's working, but I hate my life. (laughs) (laughs) How many people listening just raised their hands, right? Right. Because like what we think is like we're standing in one place, right? We're standing in one corner of the room and we think to ourselves, if I could just get to that other corner, my life will be different. My life will be different. Then you, you know, it takes you a couple of years to walk over from to that corner. Now you have an entirely different perspective of the room and you're like, well, what about that other corner though? You know? So I, I think there's a lot of that going on, but approaching your freelance business and your, you know, self-employment from a scientific method perspective, I think is really strategic and it allows you to understand that you're collecting data and then you don't have to feel so like, again, like so intertwined with the work that you're producing because now you're bringing it to the marketplace, right? Oh my God. I just have to pause there because this is the theme of this entire season of the podcast, how we have to separate our identity from what we're producing and the results we're getting in a really practical way. Like so many of my guests, the last few guests have been like, I tried X and it didn't work. And I tried it and tried it and tried it. And then I went, oh, I can still do X, but in this format or for this audience and damn, 
It's super working. And I like it. Yeah. Yeah. It takes that finessing. It takes the patience. Like I, but it takes the curiosity too. Don't you think in that, that beautiful, you know, pulling yourself away from, but I want to do this, or this is who I am or. Yeah. The distance I think is healthy, Mm -hmm. but you know, I think that all goes back to the kind of the theme of how I live my life, right. Is this like observing and watching and I'm not necessarily, you know, I don't even necessarily think sometimes that I'm, I'm creating the work. It just comes through me that, Mm. you know, I'm delivering a message that needs to be delivered or I'm helping kind of shift consciousness in this way of thinking. And I feel lucky that the ancient Greeks say the genius lives outside and not within. I feel lucky that the gifts were given to me and that I get to be the one to usher these ideas into the world. Like how amazing, how fun. So yeah, that, I think that distance, it just, and then when you get a bad review, we're all going to get a bad review. When you piss somebody off on the internet, it allows you to just be like, okay, that's not who I am. It's the work that I've produced. Let me just shout out the four agreements. Don't take it personally. Yeah, exactly. They the, In the four agreements, one of the agreements is don't take anything personally, both compliments and criticisms. Because mm-hmm, we just get so hooked on praise, right? When I'm working it. with my writers, they read to each other and I'm like, all you're allowed to say at the end is you are awesome. And you're not ever allowed to comment on the work. They get so mad at me. And I'm like, no, it's great. There's lots and lots of places where good feedback is important. But if you're constantly looking for the lever, like a a mouse or a rat (laughs) of please, please, please tell me I'm good. You don't learn to trust yourself and your own instincts about your work. Yeah. Your intuition. You don't hear that. And you don't develop those experiments that we, so that we were talking about. So let's go back to my question, because it's a good one, as you said, (laughs) what are some other things that, that those first few years of starting a business or freelancing you found useful? Yeah. I think understanding your offering through the lens of your solving a problem for an audience or a market. And because I think, especially when it comes to creativity, I think people have these wonderful ideas, but creative professionals have all these wonderful ideas. And the challenging part about commerce is when you, right, when you're bringing it to the marketplace, you have to answer the question like, well, am I solving a problem that anyone thinks is a problem? And I think nowadays, yes. And will people pay me for that solution? And I've seen some stuff where I wouldn't pay for that solution, but there is a business that is thriving. There's one in Little Tokyo here in LA where you bring in your sneakers and they clean them for you. They just make them fresh and clean. You pay them. It's like a dry cleaner, but for your sneakers. And then you pick them up and your shoes are clean. I would have never thought that that business would thrive, but apparently it is. And I mean, I've seen like service businesses where people will pick up your dog's poop in your backyard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which (laughs) blew my mind (laughs) when I thought about that. uh, Okay. I have one. I have one. A friend showed me this years ago. I do not know the woman's name. Maybe we can find it for the show notes, but I don't know if I want to. Her business is teaching you to lift things with your vagina. What? Wow. She has pictures that she's lifting things like glass chandeliers in a gondola in Venice. No. So, and this, I said, yeah, I think this is a successful business. And I think there's all sorts of like, you'll have better orgasms or better aging, or there's, you know, some benefits, not just a party trick. Right. I was just going to say that is an insane party trick. Like 
if I was at a party and somebody did that, I would dine out on that story for the rest of my life. <laughs> I would do. <laughs> but okay, so back, back to practical advice. Yes, so yes. Okay. <laughs> um, think about whose problem you're solving. Like really look at it from a problem solving perspective and then go to those people, right? And sometimes it doesn't feel like it might be a little buried or it might not seem obvious. Like when I do try to monetize my music, I think about, okay, who needs music? And here in Los Angeles and New York and everywhere else, but, you know, living in LA, there's, we have Hollywood, we have a lot of productions here, but they need music for movies. They need music for television. They need it for video games. They need it for commercials. Podcasts. In podcasts. Yeah. And there are people who has, have the problem of like, I need a song here to elicit this feeling here and we have the solution. And so when you think about it from that perspective, once you have your music, you think, okay, great. I need to be talking to music supervisors. I need to be hanging out where they're hanging out. I need to be understanding their world. So understanding your offering through a problems lens. And then I think a critical thing, since we're talking about money is making sure that they'll pay for it. Mm -hmm. And the first couple of years is an experimentation of who will pay. I think a lot of us think one demographic is going to pay. Like I see this a lot where people are like, I want to serve underserved folks, or I want to serve people who are not making a lot of money. I want to help them. And then after a few years, they're like, oh crap, I have to take on a whole bunch of clients. And my world is crazy because I have to charge, you know, my prices are low because I want to serve a certain demographic. And now they're struggling. So I think understanding that dynamic and understanding that sometimes you have to take on other clients to subsidize a different audience that you want to be helping, right? Mm -hmm. So just like thinking about it from that perspective as well. Yeah, I was having a conversation with another writing coach and she specializes in fiction. I work with nonfiction and most of her clients are people who have always wanted to write a novel, but they're successful lawyers, financial planners, et cetera. And so they can afford her higher rates. Yeah. And, and occasionally she'll work with someone who can't, who has a lot of talent or a professional writer who's like, I'm making a living as a writer and I I, I need coaching. But a lot of her clients are people who are like, oh, this is my dream. Right. And I'm not saying we should serve people who need help. Right. But you have to do it in a way that is protective of your time and your energy. I mean, that is why I wrote a book, because I wanted to reach people at a low price point. Mm-hmm. $16.99, right? Or you can get at the library. I wanted to help as many people as possible. Like the one-to-one work was killing me. It was like people texting me with activated nervous systems. And I'm like, I cannot do this, but I can write a book and I can go out there and, and just spread my message, get on as many platforms like yours as possible. And just that's my community service, right? That's mm-hmm. my way of protecting myself, creating something that it exists in the marketplace. It's solving a problem. It's affordable and it's for the people. I think it's possible to do it. It just might take you again, some experimentation, understanding who your market is, understanding different business models and how money moves through different organizations like the publishing world. And that's how you can kind of kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. And experimentation is so important. And and I think that sometimes this has been true for me, Sometimes it still is. I don't want to look at the data. Maybe the data could be anything from, okay, I'm going to write about these six things and I'm going to see how they resonate on social media to see, is there another program or an offer or a retreat that I want to do around that? But, oh, I don't really want to look at the data or 
even more specifically, look at the numbers, (laughs) the numbers, what are you actually earning from that? And, you know, I have friends who will be like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to put this retreat on and like, it's only five days out of my life. And if I make $5,000, that's great. And I'm like, uh, uh, wait, wait, how many hours did you just spend finding the retreat center? How many hours do you think you're going to spend marketing it and schlepping stuff up there, let alone preparing what you're going to present? Totally. So that seems to be part of the freelance business gig that is hard for people to grok. Yeah. The idea of your price isn't just your time. Time. Yes. It's huge for people. It's who you are. It's like your price is the 30 years of Mm -hmm. mistakes that you've made, of successes that you've had. That's what's baked into the price is Mm -hmm. all the fuck ups and all the wins, Mm -hmm. not just the hour that it takes you to ideate. Ideate? Is that a word? Come up with the idea and clickety-clack on the computer and type it out. It's not, you know, it's so much more. I think people, plus it's practical too. It's like your lawyer has to look at your agreement for some of these Mm -hmm. big projects. Depending on how gnarly the accounting is, you might be paying a bookkeeping team and account, you know, you might have insurance. All those things are baked into price. And I think people learn that quickly though. Like when tax day comes or when they're like, whoa, I'm making the same amount of money or a little bit more than I did at my full-time job. But like where to go, dude? (laughs) Wait, can I give like three very practical tips? Please. Okay, because we kind of did like mindset things. Okay, so three practical tips for folks just starting out freelancing, being self-employed. The first one, I will not shut up about it. I'm so annoying about it. It's scheduling weekly finance time. It's silly. It's simple. It's easy. It's you are. You are annoying about it. You talk about it all over the internet. It's the first thing you oh, not the first thing, but almost the first thing you talk about in the book. But you're right. Yeah, you just got to carve it out. It's on every Friday for me. Like one friend of mine was look, never looks at her credit card statement. She was paying for all of these memberships, two memberships for the same thing she was paying for. I'm like, but don't you look at your credit card every week? No. So anyway. I interrupted and see that passionate about it too. (laughs) But that alone, right? So like the gains that you can get from Mm -hmm. just sitting down and like putting your eyeballs on your credit card statements Mm -hmm. are huge. You know what I mean? And your spending patterns too. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. you know what? I feel like I feel like a lot of people at least that I know or that that I'm reaching in terms of audience, they're like, I don't have my login. So on the very first (laughs) weekly finance time, just get your logins in order. That's a win. Clock that as a win have a beer or do whatever you want to do, walk around the park. And I'm good. As long as you show up the next week and now you log in and look at one of your credit card statements, clock that as a win. I'm not asking you to do like a hundred burpees the first day at the gym. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm just asking you to understand the layout of the gym. (laughs) Second thing is separate your business and your personal finances Mm -hmm. right out of the gate. You don't have to have like an S corp or an LLC. You can just you know, march your ass to the bank and say like, I need a new account and the banker will gladly set you up with one. And now that bank account is your business account. Even if it's just a personal account, we're going to use our robust and vivid imaginations to believe that that is a business account. When you get paid from your clients, put it in that account. When you want to spend for business things, you pay out of that account. When you want to pay yourself, you can make a transfer. And that will just make your life so much nicer right around now tax time. And then the last thing is save for taxes. So I'm going to ask you to open up another account, open up a tax savings account. And there's a couple of different ways you can go about it. You can say for every dollar I earn, 
I'm going to save a percentage. And the general rule of thumb is 10 to 30%. Let's just go down the middle and say 20. So for every dollar that comes into the business during my weekly finance time, I look at all the dollars I've collected. I calculate 20% and then I just move it on over to that sales tax savings account. And that's not your money. That way, when you're like logging into your bank accounts like you do every week, you know that all of those beautiful dollars are not yours and you won't accidentally spend it. It's so important. I You talk about you learn quickly. When my first book became a bestseller and I didn't, and this is completely inexcusable because I grew up in the religion of business. I grew up with a self, a dad who was completely self-made and he could know what his tax bill was at any moment in the year. He could just rattle it off. Now these were the seventies, a lot of high tax bills, <laughs> but I forgot and I got a $30,000 tax bill. And the next okay. Day I got my butt saved. I got a royalty check for almost the exact same amount of money, but I never, ever did it again. <laughs> and the other thing I'll say for people who do events is I used to have an account just to put the money away because the full amount would come into me, but I was going to owe half of that or so to an event place. So I, I had to teach myself that too. So you don't look at that fat number in your bank account and you're like, Ooh. yes, that's like, um, I would say next level. That's next level. Yeah. It's having a purchasing account. And my wife's mm-hmm. an interior designer. She also does events. And so, yeah, we have a purchasing account and, you know, like for doing a huge event, right. It's a hundred thousand dollars are moving through the company. It can be confusing when it's all in one account and you're just like walking around, like, you know, I'm flush with cash when really like, your client isn't going to pay, you know, you aren't going to get your fee maybe until after the event. And the other thing it does, I think for, to go back to the independent contractor and the situation that Jeff is uh, starting in or someone just starting out is that you may lose the, you don't have the urgency to keep building the business, working on the business and looking for work. Cause you look at the number and bank account, you're like, well, I'm okay for this month. (laughs) Right. Very misleading. (laughs) One thing I want to say, though, is when you're opening those accounts, you want to be really clear that you're looking at careful about looking at what any fees they're going to charge you. Yes, there are some online banks that are pretty good about not charging that many fees. My favorite was Capital One Spark. They had like this whole business suite, but they stopped doing it. And I'm so bummed about it. And they're Um, a really bad company, too. Yeah, yeah. Although I have still have their credit card and I feel guilty about it. I mean... Yes. I mean, in theory, we should all be banking with community banks Mm -hmm. and try to see if you can find a community bank in your community that's investing in your community. But yes, be mindful of the fees just so that you're, uh, you know, doing whatever you need to do to make sure you can minimize them. One of the chapters I, I super love in the book, and I'll just tell everyone the title again, Finance for the People. And I really, really recommend it. And not just for people who are starting out, but people who have any kind of struggles around money, around investing, around, I can't tell you how many people ask me, because again, I grew up in a language of money that like, how do you even start to invest? And that's not the question I'm going to ask you. I want to ask you about the wonderful chapter. What are you trying to do with your life? And I, I just love this chapter so much because I feel like, especially for people who identify as women, owning our desires and separating those out from whatever our family story is, the cultural story is, this is like the foundation of everything. Like, what do I really want money for? Right. I think, I feel like no one ever let me ask that question. You know, it was like, things always felt like kind of mapped out, like you're going to go to college and then work for 40 years. Buy a house. Right. Pop out some kids. Yeah. 
and then be a grandma and that's that's it then worm food and <laughs> i mean i get it my parents again i think when you come from an immigrant family there's so much focus on building a foundation and surviving that mm-hmm. their idea of thriving is going to look really different than their american born kid you know my mm-hmm. idea of thriving is like yeah it's just different i wanted to again give people permission and you know from a financial planning perspective as a financial planner at the end of the day your job is to figure out what your clients want sometimes they tell you directly sometimes you have to read between the lines and then you have to try to anticipate all of the financial landmines in their life and prepare for them that's it right try you to call get them, them shit sandwiches in the book <laughs> i do i do call them shit sandwiches and we can't always prepare for shit sandwiches mm-hmm. you know like I was thinking about it this morning. I was thinking about how, you know, when I first got into the industry, summer of 2008, I'm a 22-year-old kid. I'm working at this small business consulting firm and the housing market is just, it's starting to melt. Lehman Brothers, you know, Bear Stearns, banks closing. Scary times. Interest rates have just gone up. Lots of foreclosures. And at 22, right, I'm like, whoa, this is exciting. People are freaking out and I want to be there for this. And I thought nothing like this will ever happen in my lifetime again. And what an idiot 22 year old thought that was because the last few years have been crazy. Right. And that's life. That's what I realized. It's like when you talk to your grandparents, when I think about my parents, you know, they've, they've seen wars, Mm -hmm. they've seen the shocks in the the oil shocks in the seventies. They saw Mm -hmm. crazy inflation in the eighties. We were living in the 90s, you know, mm-hmm. and and now here we are. And I think that uh, that's the that's par for the course of modern life. We just have to find our agency with our finances because it's not a matter of if you're going to be served a shit sandwich. It's it's when. Yeah. And how are you going to handle it? So let's just talk for a moment about what are you trying to do with your life? Because one of the things I loved is you talked about falling victim to the majority of goals that you've set. And we're, I think the self-help world sells goals like they are, you know, the bigger the goal, the brighter the goal, the shinier the goal, the hairier the goal, the better. And I have found the exact opposite to be true. I found when I set gigantic financial goals for my businesses, those my, for my business, those were always the worst years because they were completely untethered from reality and from what I wanted and also what I was capable of doing. Yeah. Goals are, you know, we live in a very goal-oriented culture and- I think what led me to really reframe my idea about goals is the fact that life is uncertain and we're living in a yeah, society is unequal. First of all, how do you write a book about personal finance, assuming those things and talking, not shying away from those things, mm-hmm. right? How do you talk about goals in that way? And I guess what I realized was, I mean, and even in my own experience, when I have reached my goal, I always feel the same. I'm still the same Paco. And for years, I thought when I reach that goal, I'm going to be this person and I'm going to feel I'll become this person. I'm going to feel differently. And always, every time what happens, I reach the goal and I'm like, God damn it. You're still the same. You didn't change. You still have to live with you. You still have to look at you in the mirror. You still have to live with you still have to be you. Nothing has changed. You've checked off this box. Great. Okay, cool. And I think I, you know, talking about that reality and being honest with people, like you think you're going to feel you might, and I hope you enjoy your goals, but adaptation, the hedonic treadmill, our happiness levels will 
always kind of they adjust exactly and that's with bad things and good things and so what i realized is if i think creative professionals artists are gonna appreciate this all you have is the process every day what do we do we show up we write we show up we create we show up we process our life and we're making the thing that we want to make our work and every once in a while there's a party right a book launch. There's a, <laughs> there's these milestones where you've made the thing, but over, you know, 90, I'm pulling this number out of my ass, 99% of the time it's showing up and doing the work. It's falling in love with the process. And I think when we allow ourselves to do that, when we allow ourselves to look at everything we're trying to achieve financially, artistically, as this lens of the process, it just takes the wind out of the goals sales. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. it allows it to be like, that's great. That's nice to have. It's a good touchstone. I can see where I want to go, but it's not, it's the journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. I also love the chapter about getting good at earning money. I know that's, there's a lot of ideas in there, but is there one in particular that jumps out at you to kind of, again, to me, it's like, what's so powerful about that chapter and about the book is, is the sense of agency that you can do things differently, that you, this really isn't rocket science people. Yeah. In terms of getting good at earning money, I think the thing that excites me the most that I want other people to be excited about is we're living in such a time of insane potential. Mm. The world is changing so quickly before our very eyes. And, you know, 15 years ago or when I was first starting out, I wouldn't have been able to build my business if I didn't have the internet, if I didn't have a service where I could blast out an email every week to share my thoughts and my ideas with the world and or run a remote you know, bookkeeping agency. And I can now, and it's changed my life. And I'm so grateful to, again, to have been born when I was born. And we're seeing kids do the craziest things on the internet to make money you know, that kid Ryan, Ryan's world, he makes tens of millions of dollars a year, like unboxing toys. I mean, it's changed over time, but that's kind of where he got his start. And I'm not saying that we should all make our kids unbox toys on YouTube and that's how we're going to make money. My point is there's so much more potential and there's so many new ways to make money these days. The kids are just making money on TikTok, making money on Instagram. It's fascinating. I mean, NFTs, we can we can talk about how terrible they are for the environment, but we can also talk about how it's just it's objectively insane that this is objectively insane. Yes. You know what I mean? So, you know, I am optimistic to a fault. I will admit that. Me too. Um, But I, I think that there's just so much potential to earn money. The world is really it's just fascinating. We're so connected. There are so many people that will value your thoughts, your ideas, what you have to share with the world. And it's crazy that we can monetize it and for better or for worse, right? The financialization financialization of the world is, is challenging, but it's also, it's an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a middle way. So let's talk about how you balance your remote bookkeeping business, your own art, being in a lovely, healthy relationship, committed relationship, married, Yeah. What does that look like on a day to day and creating a ton of content (laughs) that's out there in the world? Yeah. It's pretty wild. When I really step back and look at how much I can produce, it feels really powerful. I feel very powerful to be able to take my energy and make it into something. I'm a very particular person. I have a lot of habits and routines that I adhere to. 
I mean, how much time do you have? I meditate every day almost. And that allows me to take my focus back Mm -hmm. so that when I do show up to work, I'm effective. Mm -hmm. I'm not scattered. I'm not like, let's go on Instagram. And then it allows me to feel the urge to want to look at Instagram or feel myself feel the urge to want to be like, let's just see what's in the email, you know, instead of focusing. And once I can feel that urge, I can say, oh, it's because you're struggling with this idea that you're trying to say, and you want to get an easy way out by getting a dopamine rush of looking at someone's dog eats spaghetti or some bullshit like that. Right. (laughs) So there's that. I think vigorous exercise plays Mm -hmm. a huge role in my ability to physically sit at a computer, physically just sit there and think and clickety clack on the computer and say ideas. Right. I think vigorous exercise is important. I think the thing I've gotten obsessed with while writing the book is quality of sleep. Quality of sleep as I get older is so, so important again, so that when I'm here, I'm very focused and effective. I'm obsessed with being as effective as possible in as little time as Mm. possible. Those are some very practical things. An overwhelming sense of like wanting to be liked has driven my work. And it's so embarrassing to admit that, but I want the world to like me. I want to be invited to cool things and hang out with cool people. And that drives me. And I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. Yeah, no. Why would we be sorry? I think it goes back to let's know ourselves and let's know our desires. And when we don't know our desires, I've been watching the Netflix show Inventing Anna. And it Uh. seems like the premise of the show, I don't know if this is true in reality for this person that the show is based on, but it seems like what drove her was to be famous. So to be liked without self-reflection is dangerous. (laughs) To want to be liked and be like, oh, this is something that I'm going to work with in my life. Very different. Right. And truly, I feel an overwhelming sense of responsibility Mm -hmm. to like leave it all on the dance floor. And that means like getting all the yuck yucks, like laughing it up and living, but also telling people like, just feel your feelings, deal with your shit, know thyself, take care of your coins here's some stuff I learned. I hope it helps. I love that. I like to ask my guests the last question. What do you want to learn next? Oh, that's a great question. I want to learn how to make other large scale projects. I want to see the inside of that. Like we wrote a book. Amazing. That was a learning experience. I want to know what it's like to do a weekly podcast. What does the inside of that production machine look like? What does the inside of a television show look like? I want to know what it requires from one person and a team of people and the world responding yes to make something that has an impact on society. Well, Papa, I like you very much. I like you too. (laughs) This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. I feel empowered and excited and um, I love your book, Finance for the People. So everybody get yourself a copy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Didn't you just love her? I love her. Finance for the people. It's fantastic. You will love her wit. Her voice is just like in this podcast and the illustrations. Also check out her Instagram. She draws her Instagrams. It's fantastic. Okay. So what's your takeaway? What one practical idea are you going to put into place this week? Here's my suggestion. Make that date with yourself for a weekly finance review for one hour. If that's daunting for you, start with 15 minutes. Gather all of your passwords in one place. Isn't that a great suggestion? That's my takeaway. What's yours? 
I do it every Friday. I have it on my calendar, check bank account. I look at my credit card statements. Has anyone overcharged me? Is there any suspicious charges? What am I spending money on? Am I spending too much money? Of course, people do this with lots more detail than that. I look at my bank account, make sure that there's nothing you know, going in or out that I don't know about. And then I do more extensive reviews of my business about every six to eight weeks with my business manager. How's our cash flow? What are we expecting? Where do we need to trim? What can we do? What's working? What's not working? Without data coming back, if you are self-employed, if you are experimenting, if you are monetizing your art or your words, you're shooting in the dark. Facts are your friends, even if you have to creep up on them a little bit at a time. All right, Paco de Leon, Finance for the People. Next week, we're going to talk about more practical stuff. I'm going to talk about finding ecosystems to sell your work. I'm pivoting off of Pam Slim's episode. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, maybe give that a listen. But of course, every episode here stands alone. So we're going to be talking about ecosystems. How do you find them? And using some real specific examples from some clients. I hope you'll tune in for that. I hope you're subscribed. And I really hope you'll go give us a thumbs up, a review, or most of all, share this episode with someone who needs to get better with their finances so they can claim their power and create what they want. And in the meantime, create out loud. See you soon.